Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com if you're watching us on YouTube right now. This is our website, and you can get access to write-ups on investing going all the way back to December 2005 from Jeff Gannon for free at focuscompounding.com. If you want to learn more about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. If you're going to be in Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting, uh, reach out to me if you are a prospective investor and would be interested in learning about our fund or the managed accounts from the perspective of making a investment. Uh, we are going to be there May 3rd through the 7th in Omaha. Uh, and you could reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompound.com. We'd love to sit down, have some coffee, chat, get to know each other, and talk about everything that we are doing on the money management side of things. So Jeff, today that we are recording this is February 22nd, which means tomorrow is February 23rd. Do you know what took place, what started five years ago on February 23rd? No. That's the, that is the five, fifth year. <laughs> that is going to be our five year anniversary of the podcast. We started February 23rd, the Focus Compounding Podcast, and I was listening to it today. Um, and it was funny, like, we used to have the intro, this is the Focus Compounding Podcast, where we take questions, ask of us, and blah, blah, blah. And we really use it as a, a way to field questions from individuals and really to market the website, Focus Compounding. Mm -hmm. We had a subscription model back then. Now everything is free, but we are coming up on five years. Tomorrow is our five-year anniversary on the podcast. So I want to say congratulations to you. Thank God we made it. Didn't know that we would, but here we are. And um, thank you to everybody for listening. Pretty crazy. Five years on the podcast. How did we even come to start the podcast, Jeff? I mean, tell it, take us uh, through it from your perspective. Well, I wanted to do a podcast. I suggested that we should do a podcast and you suggested you, uh, I don't think don't, didn't want to do it. What was the point of it or what were we going to do? I don't remember all the details of what the issue was, but yeah. Um, we, and of course the early ones we had to record in bunches in batches of a bunch of them because they were shorter and, uh, we had less time to do that. We recorded in a different place and all that in a little corner. Remember mm -hmm. that little corner in the office, a uh, little black desk we recorded. I think we actually, so this is so funny. I mean, the lights were like fluorescent lights above and they were super loud. So I remember the mics would pick up on it. So didn't we have to shut the lights off sometimes? And we had like a little yeah. lamp that would be there because it wasn't as loud. Yeah. I think we had some, um, cleaning people come in sometimes and we had, a lot of <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. 
We recorded in a bunch of different places over the years. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was a grind. Because that isn't, yeah, that isn't even where people saw the first videos. That's no. also an office, but not the same office. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would go and I would, uh, you would come to uh, where I was working, my office, mm-hmm. and we would record. And a lot of times we would record after market hours, right? Or after yeah. office hours. I mean, it'd be like, what, five, six o'clock? I mean, honestly, for mm-hmm. like the first. I don't know, 50 podcasts until I went full-time with Focus Compounding. I'd just be like delusionally tired. I'd been working all day and then trying to pump out three podcasts because we would batch record at, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it was, five, six, seven o'clock at night. And I just remember it being a grind, especially when we were doing like hour-long podcasts. We've gone through different mm-hmm. generate, or I guess you could say like different phases sometimes you know we would do shorter podcasts and then we do longer podcasts and we did shorter podcasts and now we're back to the longest uh that we have done which is shooting for you know around two hours why has that changed so much over the years would you say um well one the kinds of things that we've covered have changed a little bit and then also whether recording in person or not i think also is an effect on it um so it's probably easier to record a batch of them on specific topics uh, that could be 30 minutes each or something. If we're together recording them and we have a bunch of topics that don't matter when in time we put them on. Right. But as we incorporated more timely stuff into it, then it became more of an issue um, that we couldn't really record things far in advance. And Mm -hmm. um, we started incorporating more stuff with whether it was Twitter or other things um, and doing less of the, um, the specific topics, although the specific topics, we, you know, uh, probably get more views on YouTube or something, even if they're just audio or whatever, cause they're shorter and on one specific topic. Whereas this is more set up for like a lot of podcasts are like, it's a weekly thing and it covers a bunch of different topics, not just one. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit closer to what most people do, I guess. Which do you prefer? Um, I'm not sure. I think this is fine that this could work fine if we, depending on how we organize it. But yeah, I, I like the specific topics too. And some mm-hmm. of uh, probably my favorite ones were individual topics that we did. But the the offset to that is it's good to use specific topics with something um, current. And if we did things that are like, I mean, some of the early podcasts you're talking about, about one topic that we did, we basically try to aim for like 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's not a lot of room for talking about examples of current things, you know, pointing to it and using quick FS and all that kind of stuff that we can do now. So that's good. Um, I, my, my preference would be to use long, uh, the general topics that are useful all the time, but to use current examples for that. Right. So mm-hmm. if you do a podcast about net nets, you want to talk about net nets that exist today. If you do a podcast about whatever you want to use examples from today. Um, Otherwise, it's more like a lot of YouTube things that I see, right? Um, that kind of do. They're shorter, although they're pretty long compared to what YouTube videos were not that long ago. But they're shorter than um, the long-form podcast we do now. And they're shorter, probably even a little bit shorter than the short episodes we did before. But what they don't do is any examples of current things, right? They're like more highly produced and they'll just tell you about what Ben Graham or Warren Buffett did in the past or whatever. And there's no um, exploring what that means here with some tickers and things that might be interesting to people now that they can look at and understand and suggest some stocks to look at. Mm-hmm. So like when we went over the airline 
industry history and then talked about a few different stocks because you had thought airlines look interesting where we are today in the market and stuff like that. Is that the type of format that you like for the podcast? Yeah. And even when we did things about free cash flow or hundred baggers or any of those sorts of things, we would try to tie it into a specific example mm. um, that we'd usually use to explain it today. Uh, even when we did like the hundred baggers, we'd look back at some stocks that might still exist today or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was, I think a huge change that happened for the podcast was probably, what was it? 2020 was yeah. when we started using quick FS on the podcast yes. and we started taking snap judgments. We started incorporating quick FS, pulling the financials. I really feel like that was a huge, which obviously, I mean, it was completely obvious in hindsight that we should be doing that. And then when we started doing it, I was like, this is fantastic. And QuickFS is great too, because there's no ads on it and it's mm -hmm. quick. Like you could just pull the data uh, pretty quickly. There's not a lot of stuff that's on the website, but it was just perfect uh, for the podcast. And because we use the website every single day, uh, but I I feel like that was a huge turning point from us because it was a good way to connect with the listeners, see what's on their mind. That kind of gave us a positive feedback loop for producing content ourselves. And uh, we've really kept up with that. So QuickFS has been a great iteration to the Focus Compounding Podcast, for sure. And the thing that really changed it was COVID. So, I mean, that's when we started. We never recorded remotely before COVID. We didn't use a lot of these things for COVID. We didn't do more recent ones or talk about things in the news before COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really when we recorded more podcasts with a different format, uh, you know, because we had to in the very, like basically the lockdown. Mm -hmm. That's what changed it. Yeah. What was it? I mean, the lockdown, we were doing a daily podcast for mm -hmm. a little bit there because yep. things were just changing so much. Yep, and that's what introduced a lot of things that we've um, changed up a little bit. That's also mainly how, like, some people who listen because they found it on YouTube or whatever, that's when they came during that period, basically. Mm -hmm. What is a memorable moment, moment from uh, your perspective about the podcast? Is there anything in particular that stands out? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> my my favorite moment was and i was trying to find because i tweeted it one time and i had mm -hmm. a screenshot of my face when we were talking about celsius and as i'm drinking one right now because mm -hmm. it's funny like celsius we're almost branded to the company people right. refer to celsius all the time to us and we just we don't own the stock we've never owned the stock we've talked about it a good amount we drink the products a lot so it's just it's almost like it's tied at our hip even though we have no financial stake in the business but my favorite moment was probably when you had casually mentioned that you were drinking like four celsius's a day as oh, if yeah. it was just like nothing in my <laughs> face i have a screenshot i'll have to like post it up my face i was like what i was not expecting you to say that it's just we always have these our weird diets we're always trying these different things that like we mm -hmm. talk about it and if it's not drinking a million cups of coffee it's celsius or you know the all meat diet or doing the keto, keto yeah. diet or just trying all these different things i mean i think at one point we both were just eating only salads nothing else mm -hmm. and it's yep. just funny to uh you know talk about those things on the podcast but definitely my favorite moment would be when you had said that you were 
drinking i think it was like five celsius is a day i mean are you still doing that what's going on with that give us an update. no i mean that would have been when i wasn't drinking coffee right so now that i have a pretty good way of having coffee all the time um that's not an issue i can have coffee i can make coffee whenever i want to that's good um <laughs> yeah so but i'm sure the caffeine intake is still high compared to most people how many milligrams of caffeine do you think you drink a day I don't know. I've tried to figure that out before. Um, when I go to Starbucks at one time, I had a drink where they asked me sometimes, are you drinking this all at once or safe? <laughs> I thought, that, I don't know why I would get yeah, it. Like we got to update our disclaimer. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I usually have, um, well, now it's the thing I have. I make a liter of coffee at a time. It's European. So, you know, you can convert that, but that's what I have. And I have it. I always have at least one liter of coffee. Um, and then sometimes I have more. So, you know, uh, it doesn't, I don't have a lot of, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to affect me a lot in terms of like, you know, people say that they have trouble sleeping or whatever, any of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not also a particularly anxious person. So I think some of the (laughs) symptoms that other people have, you know, are more like amplified, (laughs) you know, things that they have. So I just, I don't know that I'd be very aware of that kind of stuff. You know, Uh I'm looking up right now. I just Googled. Uh, how much caffeine is in a liter of coffee? And this says 406 milligrams. So okay. I don't know yeah. if that's, so that's uh, you know, exact or what, but that's what God Google says. Yeah, it's not very reliable. I mean, it depends on what type of coffee and what extraction method you'd be using and all that stuff. It's not even, it's not, that stuff's not even reliable from like store to store. You could go to like different, have different Starbucks make it for you, different McDonald's and it would be different amounts, you know? But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so yeah, I mean it's a it's a high amount, I'm sure. Uh even when I went on any diet or something, I didn't go off of caffeine, so Yeah, I mean I don't know why. I mean I've any time I've ever uh cut coffee out of my life or caffeine out of my life, I was absolutely miserable. So I will never ever do that ever again till the day I die. Yeah. I mean I don't I you know, who knows? I don't notice a lot of negative things about it. Obviously if you go off of it, it's very the withdrawal is severe. Yeah, uh, for a brief period of time. But the withdrawal is severe for lots of things. Like we said, if someone went from eating carbohydrates to none or, you know, from doing whatever thing to not doing it, you have a few days that aren't good. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I had a problem, then I, if, you know, I had some health issue because of it, then I <laughs> mm-hmm. would obviously stop doing it. But mm-hmm. yeah. What drives you to these like extreme diets? If it's like an all meat diet or no carbohydrate diet, is that... A personality thing or what do you think that is yeah yeah it's a personality <laughs> thing i think it's just easier to keep to certain um practices they're not even rules it's just easier for me so i don't like i i'm not someone who's going to read the back of something for you know whatever like what we're talking about with the coffee or whatever thing um so i don't want to be worrying about whatever that stuff is um diet things are you know it's when i um the diet things are hardest with other people, right? So that's the same. I mean, we have like the meat thing was easy because, you know, we've been to some like um, business meetings and stuff when I was doing that. And they may notice, but basically you can get something that's just meat like anywhere. So that's why mm-hmm. it's an easy thing to do. Then you don't have to say that there's anything or do anything or whatever. So you just want something that's like available everywhere that you could do. Um, yeah. Just making it as easy as possible. That's kind of like the atomic habits thing. Yeah, if you don't eat during certain times or, 
you have to like keep track of certain things or whatever, then obviously that'd be a little inconvenient sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so throughout the five years that we've been recording the podcast, is there a particular guest interview or guest that we had on the podcast that you really enjoy doing? I mean, we stopped doing that probably, yeah. I don't know, a year and a half in. Do you wish we brought other individuals on the podcast? Is that something you want to incorporate? Is there anything that sort of sticks out to you from that uh, perspective? Uh, I liked having guests, but I'm not sorry that we don't do it anymore. I think you'd have to do like two different podcasts or something, basically. I don't think it's a mm -hmm. good format thing. I, I don't When I listen to other podcasts or something, I don't really like when it's a, let's say, a panel of always the same people and then they mix in someone else. Mm -hmm. Um who's not like just a guest panelist person, but someone they're interviewing or something, but then a show that's a hundred percent interview. I, I like that. You know, that's fine. So if it was a, just a series of interviews, that would be fine. I don't have anything against that. And I think we had good guests. I just don't think it works great for the format of what we're doing. If you expect the kind of thing we're going to be talking about, and then you get something else. Um, we also tried on the website um, to incorporate other people writing for it. And they did a good job and everything, but that just didn't work out the way that I hoped. And I think it's sort of the same thing with the guest thing. It has nothing to do with the quality of the guests or anything like that. It's just for what we do, it doesn't work very well. We're, mm -hmm. we're kind of branded as specific people and doing a certain style and everything. And if we were a little more generic that way, I think it would work better. But I don't think that it has worked that well. Certainly the response I feel like from the audience and stuff hasn't been... Um, what I hope for for that. Also, it's a little bit more complicated, obviously, mm -hmm. to arrange things and do all that. You know, then we have some complications from that. So, mm -hmm. did you like it when we brought on the guest to talk about Burford Capital, who was a bull on the stock after mm -hmm. a bear report came out on the company, and he gave his own perspective? Is that something that you would like to incorporate more in the future, or anything well, you know similar to that? Sure. So that one I liked in a sense because I felt that we did a more detailed thing through through Stephen coming on and doing that. Mm -hmm. um, that it wasn't just rumor or whatever things. We did sort of more of a deep dive on that topic and it was a stock that was in the news and everything. So I do like that a lot better. I don't like a show that's just kind of like a... Um, like go through all the news stories of the week and the people talking about it have some awareness. They read some headlines or they, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I would prefer that we cover a few things in more detail. And especially if they're things that other people aren't talking about um, or, to, or to a different take on something that people are talking about. Right. So the Burford one, I feel like um, was more detailed discussing it. Mm -hmm. And obviously with someone who was, who was more positive on the stock, but besides that, it just was a more, um, uh, dispassionate uh real analysis of the situation and stuff as opposed to just news things and talking about it that way so i feel like we handled it in a situation that we handle it from a perspective that was different than most people covering it so i like that yeah mm. it'd be an interesting podcast to bring him back on and i mean i don't know what is it three or four years since stephen gamble has been on the podcast and be like hey you know what are your thoughts uh do you still own uh the stock have you changed your mind on anything have you only gained more conviction you know just sort of an update yeah and also that was good because sometimes you can guess who do things that we wouldn't do and that yeah. is one because i won't really discuss things that are like short things or whatever that much um some giant ones i've talked a little bit about or whatever but generally that's not something that i like to discuss so that's a good one to have someone else on mm -hmm. yeah
Absolutely. Well, five years uh, tomorrow on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So uh, drink a Celsius to that. And uh, we'll uh, see what the next five years takes us. We're constantly iterating and trying different things. And yeah. this is just a different phase of, you know, we're doing two hour long shows and trying to get the best product out there and the most amount of information within the two hours that we are targeting per show. So it's been a lot of fun. I actually, I like recording remotely. I mean, what do you like recording remotely? I mean, obviously it's a little bit different. Sometimes the tech side, uh, like the 20 minutes we spent before this podcast, trying to get the tech to work could be a little bit annoying, Mm -hmm. uh, and challenging. And it seems like it never is exactly perfect, but I mean, what are your thoughts generally to it? I mean, the reason I like it is because recording in person, if for whatever reason we weren't able to record, uh, right. it would sometimes push things back where it's like, well, we're recording remote. It doesn't matter if I'm in, you know, I don't know, across right. the country or across the world, we could record at a time that we both choose. Um, what are your thoughts generally I, on recording remotely? I think it's worked fine. I think it worked pretty well during uh, COVID. At first, there were some difficulties, but pretty well. And this, I think, with what we use now, I think is even better. Um, the tech's gotten better a, since COVID too, believe it or not. Because, co- I mean, obviously podcasting has boomed since 2020. So there's been more tech that's yeah. come out and things have gotten better and stuff like that. And I imagine it'll only continue to get better. Yeah. Um, and we're just two people. I'm pretty used to what we're doing. And so uh, it's pretty easy to watch what the other person's doing and have an understanding of that. Uh, in general, though, I, I pref- there's a definitely the larger the number of people and the more that they're the same people doing every podcast or something, I do notice a big improvement on podcasts that uh, and video things or whatever that are done in person. Mm-hmm. Large numbers of people, if you had four or five people on a panel or something and did it um, remotely, it, the the energy in a room is a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also think just if we are tired or whatever and stuff uh, in person, you're going to get a higher energy level um, yeah. than you are remotely. I think a tired sick whatever remote person is more noticeable usually yeah from our perspective too right like we typically record here's some you know behind the scenes we record at 3 30 on wednesdays mm-hmm. uh but last time we recorded prior to today we recorded what was it, 11 a.m and i felt okay. like we were firing on all cylinders so perhaps yeah. maybe we yeah. should change it because i look i don't i get up early and right. i do work all day and when 3 30 comes mm-hmm. Perhaps I'm a little bit more sleepy and all caffeinated up and a little bit more brain fogged than I would be at 11 a.m. Um, so, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's totally true. Maybe sometimes yeah, it comes I, through a little bit more on the podcast, uh, you know, when you record remotely. Yeah, I think recording earlier is fine and would work fine. You know, recording 10 a.m. or whatever would be fine for us now. Um, you know, we picked the times that we did mainly so that we'd be least likely to have to move it back. Or so. That's what basically what we do in the middle of the week because... You know, when we had problems, it was usually not in the middle of the week. That was the issue. So, mm-hmm. um, and also we, we've experimented with like, when's the best time to release and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that it's fine to release later mm-hmm. in the week and stuff, you know? Um, but for different kinds of podcasts, it sometimes matters a great deal when you release it. I think mm-hmm. for ours, it's, it's fine. Um, and especially cause we do a longer format now and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you got a little uh nice tan there jeff what what you uh what you been up to i was in florida in um, is this tampa jeff again yeah i was in tampa 
and okay. I was in uh, you know I was in Disney World in you know by Orlando, but mainly Tampa. So give us the boots on the ground uh, due diligence scuttlebutt. Yeah, what uh, were they busy? I mean, what are you mm-hmm. seeing going on at Disney World? Yeah, so for um, 2020, I was there this week in 2020. The week, not this week, but the week I was there in February was the exact same week in 2020. 2022 and 2023 i was not there in 2021 because of covid basically the park was open and stuff then but it had restrictions um so uh, i think the big difference this time was the mix so last year when i was there it was very crowded um and yet it had a and there's a lot of people trading up and heavy spending and things like that but it was heavily, heavily domestic. It was very American, not very foreign, which is, you know, Disney mm. World normally has a lot of foreign visitors. This time, big foreign. So, which is reflected in the stuff you see about international air travel and all that. It was really poor last year. Uh, America had opened back up. But, like, the the international tourism to the United States and stuff was not um, what it used to be. So, it's just a different mix of people. I, I would say very busy last year at this time, very busy this year. Um Certainly the hotels must have higher occupancy and stuff. Um, I think that's noticeable. And I think restaurants might have higher occupancy too. I I don't know that admission stuff is terribly different from last year, but I think that there's probably more um, people planning from further away. So they're staying at resorts, booking them, booking restaurants in advance, hotels in advance, all that stuff. And uh, that's certainly noticeable in pricing on it, which is different than it was only a few years ago and availability and stuff. And I think that's driven by more foreign and more far away and a lot less like Florida residents and, and Americans from other parts of the country. So probably a bigger spend per person would be my guess really? now versus mm-hmm. a couple. Yeah. Yeah. It is the heaviest I've ever seen that way. I would say the mix was very, very favorable to high spending. So when you say, uh, from a pricing perspective, are prices way up then and people, customers are no. just paying it or no. Okay. No. I'd say, for instance, I was in Tampa and at Disney. I'd say there's more inflation in in Tampa than in Disney. I mean, since the if you think about CPI and stuff, they should be up about maybe seventeen percent or something like that from from the time I'm talking about in 2020 mm-hmm. till now. Uh, I don't know that the prices have actually risen seventeen percent. Tampa's risen more than that, I'm sure. Um, certainly, restaurants and things, I'd say double or something that amount um, in the three years. But um, that's because Tampa's been more hard hit, I think, by inflation and people moving there and stuff, just as parts of Texas, Arizona, you know, other places like that around the country have been. So um, I just think the mix, Mm -hmm. the people that you're getting are people who want to spend a lot. Mm -hmm. They're people who are coming from far away, people who haven't been there in several years, and uh, they just, they want to stay in hotels, they want to spend at restaurants, they want to buy expensive things. Um, I definitely saw, I'd say that has shifted less value, more, um, more spending, a lot more trading up, those sorts of things. And it's reflected in their numbers, uh, Disney's numbers, certainly. And, um, you know, that's, that's just what I think that you're seeing there. And that's also been seen by other parks, um, other casinos, other mm-hmm. hotel things, some other stuff, uh, movie theaters, everything is seeing higher per capita spending. And, you know, to the extent they can trace it, I think it's that they're getting different kinds of people wanting different kinds of experiences as a greater percentage of their their overall sales. Mm-hmm. Have you uh, stayed up to date on Six Flags? I know we talked a little bit about uh, the stock on the podcast and the activist that uh, is trying to make some changes with uh, 
a company, but is there anything new there or anything like that? I mean, the price has gone up a little bit. Price has gone up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I read Disney's transcript, read Cedar Fair's transcript. Um, I read you know, Cedar Fair's too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know that a lot has changed since we last talked about Six Flags, mm-hmm. but you know, um, we talked about insider buying, but that's due to like the requirements that they, you know, whatever that that's, but that was part of the expected thing that everyone be buying from the inside. And, um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously this, like this period we're in right now and a little bit, the last quarter is much more relevant at Disney than at these other parks. Disney is three, you know, it's open every day of the year. And, you know, actually when I was there, that's a quieter period, believe it or not for them. Uh, February because of schools and stuff has historically not been that busy. I would guess the, f- the first week after, um, the first or second week in September is their quietest, but February is pretty quiet. So if anything, they're busier at other times than when I was there. Um, although weather obviously is most favorable compared to the rest of the country in, in February in Florida, but, but school is the thing that affects it. So, mm-hmm. um, so these other ones like Cedar fair, it's not going to matter what they're doing in, right now in February. And it, matters a little less what they did in you know december november october compared to disney mm-hmm. yeah when i was reading their transcripts i learned that they're a cashless uh theme park all of their theme mm-hmm. parks are cashless i was surprised to read that i don't know how long that's been going on for that uh at their parks but do you have any thoughts generally on that i mean do you think that yeah. it's like a, a more efficient way to run your parks yeah do you lose out on you know, with shrinkage, right? Maybe customers stealing money. You uh, could have less cost because it's all done electronically. Basically, it's easier to you know keep the flow of everything. I mean, what are your thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah. So, like Disney, I would say as an example, the thing that people don't realize probably about the parks, or at least by certainly Disney World, is their capacity to move a lot more money through the system is a lot higher because they don't need to have people waiting in lines as long because of all the technology that they've invested in. They invested in a huge amount of money there, right? Now, they're much more extreme than these other companies we're talking about because they do things with the Magic Band and Lightning stuff and all that, which means that they're tracking everything and keeping you out of lines and spending money all the time. Um, So that's a huge difference versus a few years ago is that the amount, uh, the percentage of time of like that you're in the park that you could actively be spending a lot of money is up. And um, yeah, I think that that's useful. So doing things through apps and stuff like that. Um, in terms of people who visit theme parks, I don't know. Some of Cedar Fair's smaller parks, it could hurt them a little bit that they might not use money. But people who visit theme parks are generally people who aren't using cash anyway. So I'm mm-hmm. not sure that would be a requirement to to um, be important that they be able to use cash. And then, and then obviously there's security things and all that stuff anyway that are introduced by handling cash. And it slows things down. So... Um, you know, like when I said the Disney things, part of it is that speeding up how you can do a transaction, giving you less options, doing things at a m- bunch of different things faster instead of making you wait in long lines, but having lots of different places where you can spend, um, are all things that they do. And that like, you know, cruise lines do and all sorts of other stuff. So mm-hmm. I've even seen some positive ones in, um, movie theaters along that way with contactless stuff. And also I've been to a thing that I've, that Cinemark might roll out in other places that, I, that you know, they probably tested that uh, changes concession stuff, which probably really increases the amount that people would spend 
because they don't have to wait in lines and things and do it themselves and it kind of moves them through and they so a, a lot of them are doing things like that that would be helpful you know maximizing the amount of time that people are spending money because it's not just that like when you're in a line it's annoying for you mm-hmm. visiting a park uh it's not very useful to the company because obviously you're standing in a line it's getting a annoyed and stuff and you're not spending money mm-hmm. so you know that's why I would compare it to casinos and things. They need you betting a lot of money at something rather than just kind of hanging around and doing whatever. So there's all sorts of different things about the mix. And I think that a lot of the technology stuff is certainly driven to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how often do you carry cash on you? Are you a cash carrier? I always have cash, but I never use it. Yeah. I, I mean, just in case. Very rarely. I mean, very, very rarely have. And especially now, I mean, yeah. if, I mean, you don't have an iPhone, but you could have your credit cards on your iPhone for Apple pay and, in case that you don't ever have your wallet. But if you're mm-hmm. actually watching on the screen now, best thing I ever purchased was my uh, iPhone case that has a wallet attached to it. So oh. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I can never say that I didn't forget or that I forgot my wallet, Jeff, because I always have my phone with me. So that's yeah. the only downside of it. Uh, let's look at Cedar Fair, though. I mean, where we currently are, uh, price of sales 1.3 times, EV sales 1.3 uh, market cap 2.4 billion, EV uh, 2.34 billion. Um, would you be interested in this company at uh, where we currently are? I mean, they're back above their pre-COVID peak and seem to be cooking. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on uh, Cedar Fair. We obviously have spent a lot of time in entertainment, talk about movie theaters, stuff like that. But we haven't really talked about Cedar Fair too much. Uh, on the podcast. Yeah. I'm not sure if the price things for the debt is correct here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one thing that I question because they have quite a bit of debt. Um, so are they three times and, debt to EBITDA right now or something? Yeah. They have a couple billion in debt. I believe if you ha- go to their most recent quarter, it might show it. It's not showing up. That's probably why. So it's not capturing it yet. The balance sheet isn't in there. That's why. Mm-hmm. So do we know what their debt was like a quarter before the September quarter that it has a full balance sheet for? Yeah, they had $2.2 billion in debt. Yeah, so you have to add that on. So that would make mm-hmm. it trading more in line with what I know the other parks are trading at. Generally, it seems like parks are trading at 2 point sometimes EV to sales. Um, given that a lot of these have over 20% operating margins, um, it's pretty cheap compared to stocks generally. It's not mm-hmm. bad. Um, so historically, let's see, their EBIT margin has been in the 20 25% range. Mm-hmm. And then the EV to sales is not much different than that. It, it, much different in the sense that it's not probably much more than two and a half times or something like that if we added the debt. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's in line mostly with what I've seen of like Six Flags and SeaWorld and some other ones. Um, if we kind of, you have to adjust for different things with each of them. Um, obviously, they this is a company that normally distributes its earnings. Mm-hmm. And so it's said that it's going to start doing that again. Um, and once it does, they even said, I think in the transcript that they'll see how the market reacts to that. Uh, maybe if they don't get enough credit for it, they'll buy back stock instead, but historically they didn't buy back stock. Instead, they, uh, paid out. And so they kind of tended to pay, they tended to be priced at sort of a premium to some parks because people like those distributions. They bought back a lot of stock too last year, didn't they? Yeah. But I think that's just because they weren't paying the distribution that they had before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I would expect them to shift that and not do that anymore. Were you surprised to read that they were going to wait and see how the market reacts 
to their dividend? Um, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I caught my eye. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, historically, they did that all the time. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a question of it, but it is an interesting question now. Things may have changed a little bit in which they don't get as much credit for that now. Um, the market's attitude towards things like dividends maybe has shifted somewhat. Um, I, you know, I think that there's probably more value in buying back the stock at the prices that the stock was at before. In general, I think there's probably more value for a company like this to do that. Um, they also, you know, they have a limited flexibility if they pay out in terms of they need to make investments in the parks. So they have to have debt because of that. So, you know, buybacks could be more whenever they want to, but the payments to the unit holders would be a regular thing. And so that would, that can sometimes be a problem um, for some companies if they have to be borrowing all the time, no matter what, right? Because the cost to borrow now for long-term is a lot more expensive than it used to be. And, you know, if they want to invest a certain amount and they said that they're paying out so much to the unit holders, Mm -hmm. then they're going to have to take on debt to do that. If, if they want to make big investments in some parks this year, because, you know, CapEx can be lumpy for new things, then they could just not buy back stock this year or something, you know. So it would let them kind of target their debt levels maybe more. Um, and they probably have looked at other companies in the same industry and seen that not paying any dividend hasn't been a big harm to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Are you for or against, or maybe just it doesn't matter to you, publicly traded LPs? Like, would you go into... Uh, investing in Cedar Fair with a different mindset than you would just a normal public company that isn't an LP? I mean, because of what we do, it has an effect on that. And so I think it has an effect on lots of money managers and stuff like that, whether it's LP, LLC, things that... There's some companies I don't talk about really on the podcast because I've said to people, look, you're probably not going to buy this because of tax things or whatever. Um, You know, for people in general and stuff, it would be better if there was more of these things and people bought them... um, the way that used to be, but the way that the market is now, you know, a lot of the market isn't made up of like individual investors buying and holding for the long term, And so I think some of these publicly traded things that do this are at a disadvantage long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of company. I see lots of companies that make decisions that from a tax perspective are negative, but are positive from getting interest in their stock, you know? So, I mean, one of the things I find interesting is if you look at some companies in the same industry in the United States, um, some use LIFO, last and first out for inventory, and some use FIFO, first and first out. Um, from the perspective of making the most money over time, creating the most wealth, whatever, for their shareholders, um, you know, in those industries where they do that, they should all be using LIFO. So the reason why they're using FIFO is because they want to report higher earnings. So the only way that they can get to pay lower taxes is by reporting lower earnings. They're not allowed to report... Um, the most aggressive way for for earnings that way. What's interesting about it is if you look at what companies are doing it, it's the companies that are probably a little more concerned with what Wall Street thinks about it and whatever, mm-hmm. and more growth-oriented, less likely to pay a dividend, all that stuff. And the other ones are more older, and they've done it from before. Um, so, you know, the, some of there's some things, some of these companies, um, s- some of them have, you know, there's advantages to doing it a certain way. There was one, but, but, you know, but people won't buy them. They just won't mm-hmm. buy the stock. So like, you know, I was talking to people about one stock that there's just no, I don't think there's any chance that they'll buy it um, because it's uh, a LLC instead of being a C Corp. Um, so 
it complicates things. Um, but it, usually it's a good sign if you see that this is just a structural thing, but mm-hmm. at companies, usually it's a really good sign if you see a lot of care taken about taxes and stuff and, and not a good sign if you don't. Um, so those are always interesting. Like uh, I saw a company that was um, structuring things so that it could pay quite a lot in dividends as a return of capital instead of being as if it was earned. Um, and But they've paid a lot out over time that way. And so they've been careful to make sure they do that. But it's the usual sort of thing in that it's a lot of insider ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the same ones who pay large special dividends are always large insider ownership. Um, they might be more lawyers, more accountants, whatever. They're not like, you know, people promoting a stock to go public and, you know, doing all of that. So do you have a preference towards any? Have you ever invested in an LLC, like a publicly traded one? Yeah, I um, do not look at them basically because of, you know, our situation as Mm. I don't for some other things as, as, you know, um, I mean, I, I learned this when I did the Japanese net nets, when I did some other things, I did some things personally that complicated some tax things and other people won't do it. And I literally mean complicated. It does not cost more in taxes. <laughs> it yeah. just required more things to be filled out or to wait for something or whatever it might be. Um, you know, so for instance, there's, there's IRS rules about foreign companies that have, um, that are basically like cash shells effectively. Right. And, and things like that. And so there's more complicated rules that you could fall into if you're buying things in in other countries that other people would never think of that you have this rule. Um, so, you know, a lot of these fall into that kind of stuff. We're not going to do things that are going to probably result in complications for taxes and stuff for people, Mm -hmm. but the same things for reporting things. There's some reasons why we wouldn't buy things up to a certain level or whatever for sec stuff, purely for reporting issues. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's just something a, you learn in the business. From a business perspective on our end, we were doing something one time and you're like, no, you asked me to ask the accountant something. I got the answer and they gave an answer you did not like. And you're like, no, like yeah. I get that they would tell you that, but I'm saying, I don't think that's the only way to go about doing this. The way that we could go about doing this would be more complicated, right. but it, that doesn't mean it's the wrong way of doing it. Yes. Because what, accountants will sometimes tell you is do this thing, which will actually be less tax efficient because it will simplify things and put you in line with what everyone else is doing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, but I mean, pay attention to what people, whether it's Berkshire Hathaway or John Malone in his career or any of these people that you look at, they're usually very efficient about those sorts of things, whether it's, um, tax things or other things about giving up value to other people and all mm-hmm. that. Um, you want to make sure that you don't waste stuff that way. I mean, I, we talked about this with um, the deal that they did with QAnon land association. Um, so if you look at that deal from the perspective of the buyer, they paid an incredibly high price um, in terms of what they got, because instead of structuring it differently, the, there's a gap there. And so obviously the price that they paid the seller needs to get a price met no matter what. So if the, if, um, some of it is going to the government because of inefficiencies in how it was structured that that doesn't give you a cheaper price. It makes it worth less to you, but the seller isn't going to sell to you any lower because of that. And, um, that's just an indication, but that was an institutional buyer. So yeah, I think institutions often don't maximize, um, tax efficiency because you don't get a lot of, um, credit from it, from, from your clients. The same thing is true when we talk, I mean, there's things, I mean, I talked a little bit about this, but if you think about it, like 
you could have things run from a managed account perspective that could gain you some percentage overall just because of making sure that it structured things properly in terms of maximizing tax efficiency because it would have so many different positions, some of which would be gained, some of which would be losses. This is something we don't have, unfortunately, because we have such concentrated positions, such few positions. Obviously, we run into the problem that we tend to have a lot of the time our positions are in gains. All the, I mean, we don't have offsetting losses for them. But if you're super diversified, as many people are, then you could have benefits from that. And there might even be benefits to churning some things. But you, you won't get any credit for that if you do that. If you say people, ta they, I mean, they basically pay you on pre-tax results and stuff. So you'd have to create a whole strategy for some high net worth clients and things being like, this is what we do for you. You're not going to otherwise get credit for it to save people money on taxes. And you will get punished for increasing any sort of complexity for them. Mm -hmm. So you're just creating a reason why they might leave you. So, mm -hmm. I mean, even remember, we have talked about Beaver Coal on the podcast. And mm -hmm. from being a fund, it would just be more challenging for us to buy that company um, just yeah. from a tax perspective. But as an individual, it probably would have worked out great. I actually think the stock's up you know, way higher than where we were actually very interested in it, but passed just because of um, structural issues, right? Nothing to do with the business itself, but just more so the entity that we're using to invest. Correct. And, um, you know, I've said that to people before, like as an individual, if you can handle this, they're the biggest advantages because if someone's not buying something just for a tax reason or just because of how it'll look for whatever reason or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. um, then you, that's a good reason to, to buy it. That's an advantage to have. If, if someone's less likely to buy something because it's unlisted or because it's not technically a stock, you know, th there's some weird ones that are sometimes attractive because they're actually some sort of trust thing um, mm -hmm. or certificate of whatever. Um, there's a few things that trade in the United States, which people in their write-ups refer to as stocks, but they're not stocks. Um, they, they give you different interests and in things, which could be interest in royalty things that you have. They could be interest in whatever different things. They may be things that don't attach any, um, voting rights to it or restrict you in other ways and whatever. Um, yeah. And a bunch of them were set up for, um, to resolve some sort of issue in the past. Right. So someone who was probably a larger shareholder or some, or group of someone's needed to be compensated in some way. And so that's why they created it. Um, yeah, I think we were in the area doing some work on Beaver Coal. What was mm -hmm. it? Summer of 2020. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. just looking on here, we were talking $1,100 per share. And it's currently up to 3200 per share. And because of what? Yeah. A structural issue that pushed us away. Nothing to deal with investment itself, management, nothing. It was purely no, a, definitely. a thing. I mean, and everything that we kind of, why we focus on overlook stocks too, right? It's because larger company or larger funds won't focus in this area and even us being small it presented an issue where we weren't able to carry out an investment that we wanted to make yeah mm -hmm. so yeah but I mean, that's a good advantage for individuals and, everyone listening right yes because if you go through some of these things and look at what's the stuff that they're passing through on the tax things it's, this is not necessarily this is highly taxed stuff or a disadvantage. In some cases, there's favorable stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that it's more complicated, right? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and I don't know that, I mean, but you, you can you can definitely tell because, look, if you go to Corner Berkshire or Fairfax or any of those sorts of things, people may forget what stocks 
made the money and what lost the money and stuff, but they'll never forget what stocks complicated their tax. <laughs> so, yeah. It's sort of like with the merger things, you know, um, mm-hmm. if they feel they got a bad price from some management, you know, that did a management buyout or whatever sort of thing, they remember that, that they, they feel that they got screwed on that thing. Um, but they often forget that they made a bunch of money too, because they bought it cheap and they got a premium or whatever, but that just last that 10%. Went. Yeah. So, um, it's the same sort of thing. You know, it just is a bad feeling for people and stuff. And um, now so much of everything is passive and so many people are so widely diversified. I think it's different. Um, A long time ago when people would buy these things and then sock them away somewhere. And that's what a lot of the original owners and long-term owners and all these things are for that are larger, the larger shareholders. Um, It's not a problem. But yeah, for the little shareholders that we're talking about, they're not used to doing anything that isn't a stock that doesn't complicate things at all. So. Mm Mm-hmm. Got it. Did you uh, watch the replay of the Daily Journal meeting with Munger? No, I did not. Okay. So you'll have to uh, listen to it. It was funny. 99 years old. And he was uh, spilling some wisdom as he usually does. He, I thought it was pretty interesting. He said a few things that I wanted to go over on the podcast. So people brought up Alibaba, obviously, as they usually do. And he actually admitted that it was a mistake. One of the worst mistakes he's ever made, I believe, is what he had said. And we'll go through it here in a second. These are transcripts. Uh, Kingswell, I'll put the link in the description. This guy took some time and transcribed it. Uh, It's a long document, so I wanted to give him a shout out. So that'll be in the description down below. But somebody had asked him a question about Alibaba. It says, according to company filings, it appears that Alibaba shares were purchased with leverage. And when the stock price fell last year, you were forced to sell. Can confirm if it was bought with leverage. And if so, why would you do that? It seems to go against your philosophy. Uh, But I thought it was interesting, this part right here, when he was talking about if you come across just the complete no-brainers, how much he'd be willing to put of his net worth in an investment. He says, if you're the kind of fellow who's right when you think something is a cinch, the answer is 100% or maybe 150%. But nobody teaches people to think that way in finance. If the opportunity is great enough, the logical answer is 100% or maybe 200%. For someone that talks about um, ladies, liquor, and leverage being able to destroy Mm you, he certainly has used leverage a few times throughout his career. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he did uh, an arbitrage trade, which was like 100% or more of his mm-hmm. partnership in one deal. Um, yeah. He talks about Berkshire. He said Warren in the Buffett partnership used leverage uh, every mm-hmm. year. He said what Warren would do is he would buy a bunch of stocks and then he'd borrow against those stocks and he'd buy into what they used to call event arbitrage, liquidations, mergers, yes. and so forth. That didn't and, go and up and or agree. down with the market. I've, yeah. Yeah, I've said to people, I would buy those on leverage, I would say, to use leverage when buying those. I mean, I don't recommend that. I never recommend leverage people because I don't know how they're going to use it and whatever. But I think we talked about a preferred stock before. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, this is a good purchase if you do it with leverage, but it's not if you don't. Because, I mean, it doesn't make sense to buy a guaranteed practically, you know, 9.9% return or something without using leverage. Um, Because you can go and find other things that can give you 
pretty similar returns, not necessarily as good risk-adjusted returns, but what does that matter to you to have zero risk in the long run versus having slightly more volatility and stuff? Um, you know, it, it doesn't. There's a point at which that's too far, and so, yeah, it would make sense to leverage that up. We talked about um, Davis Dynasty. He applied leverage all the time to his... Um, yeah. So, I mean, the only thing I'd say about that is I always tell people, like, look, I'm not for saying use leverage, use margin stuff, whatever, but if you're buying companies like Transdime or like whatever, um, I don't see what the difference is of doing that where they have the um, debt on them and they're leveraging up a very predictable, very stable, whatever business, but with a ton of leverage at the corporate level versus you doing that and applying it to a business that is, um, you know, that, that you think is super predictable and stuff, but has no debt on it. I, I don't really, I don't understand the difference. So there's people will say, I'll never buy, I'll never use, margin debt and all that. And, uh, okay. And then they'll buy Carvana right? <laughs> instead of all, instead of I'll use some margin debt to yeah. buy this preferred stock in this thing, or to do this, um, you know, um, you know, when we talked about the Hunter Douglas thing or the Activision blizzard thing or what, you know, the, the different merger arbitrage things. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Buffett would put about a quarter of his portfolio into merger arbitrage and he would offset it with debt. And I think Graham Newman believed in using debt that way. And mm. yeah. Somebody had asked about Occidental Petroleum, which we spoke about a lot about last year on the podcast. Will Occidental Petroleum and Chevron be long-term holdings for Berkshire going forward? And Charlie said, that is a very good question. I think having a big position in the Permian Basin through those two companies is likely to be a good, a pretty good long-term hold. So I like that aspect of that position. Ben Graham used to say, if it's a good investment, it may be a good speculation. And I think that's generally true, but I don't do those short-term speculations, at least not very often. But I like the big position that Berkshire has in the Permian through those two. I kind of admire both places a lot. Both Occidental and Chevron are very admirable places. By the way, Oxy didn't start like that. If you go back 30 or 40 years, Oxy was run by a crook. It's evolved into a wonderful place, but it started as a sleaze bag. That's true. That was, you can probably look up the history yeah. of Occidental and stuff, but yeah. I thought that was funny. Uh, what do you think about that quote he used from Ben Graham? If it's a good investment, it may be a good speculation. What does that even mean? Yes. So, I mean, uh, well. Because we've talked a lot so, about intelligent speculation on the podcast, right? Right. So, Ben Graham, first of all, Ben Graham's definition of investment is is different than how a lot of people use it on this podcast or whatever as being long-term or any of that kind of stuff. So, um, but it is true that it like, if it's a good investment, then it also could be a really good speculation. If say you're buying cheaply. So like, for instance, there's, um, uh, well, I'll tell you one that, that, that this would fall into is, um, we talked about, uh, Amark precious metals, right. Mm -hmm. And I did write up of it where I said, look, like there's not much, the market is putting very little value. It's a little bit of positive value. Like if I say, what is the investment value of Amark precious metals without the issue of the, the market in precious metals um, being it. So just the lending business and stuff that it had, that accounts for most of the value that the market had on it at the time. Mm -hmm. So you were paying a very, very small amount for the possibility that there would be a good year. The same way that if you could buy into an investment bank at some tiny, tiny fraction of book value or something, even though it might not uh, have any, you might not have any idea that it would make money. There'll probably be a year that's good for whatever thing they do with their bond things or their um, 
M&A things or whatever thing they're in, they'll just be a good year and the, it'll go up. And so, um, you know, that's, I think that's what he means. Um, you know, that's how he got his start in, you know, when he talks about his memoir and stuff on wall street is by suggesting buying defaulted, um, uh, you know, bankrupt railroad stocks that were trading at a value that was inappropriate versus an option. Now today, people have very complex methods for how to value options and stuff. And so you wouldn't have the same opportunity. But back then what often happened is that after a stock was bankrupt, but was still trading, the, the company was in bankruptcy, but it was still trading. Uh, they knew that they would get some sort of thing in terms of converting into the new stock. It was going to be massive loss, but it would be somewhat positive that way. And so if the, there was a good period for the railroads before the conversion happened or a few years after whatever you bought it and held on, then you could make a lot of money because you can only lose say 10 cents, but you can make a dollar 50 if it works out. And you know, that's warrants and stuff like that. So, um, and I, I think that's true. I mean, I think if I see a stock that's a good investment, then, and there's warrants outstanding, then you got to look at the warrants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amar precious metals. We were talking about it in 2020, right? Around four bucks or $3 a share. And it's up to $31 here today. Yeah. And so I forget if it was about 70% or so of the value was hard investment value, like a value investor would gladly pay it. Mm -hmm. And then you were paying a small amount, a few dollars a share. I I don't remember if it was $4 or $3 or whatever, but like that was the only the amount that was the speculative portion of it. Um, And that's because they had a business that was like lending, secured lending and stuff like that. Um, But then there was another part, which is the spread business, which if they ever had a good year and that you could see because in past times they'd had once in a while had a good year. Um, we, we mentioned Friedman industries. That's mm-hmm. a classic example mm-hmm. because it's often been a net net and people go, Oh, what will ever happen? So well, if it's ever one good year for steel, the, the stock will go, uh, you know, it'll like earn its market cap in it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so of course you'd say, well, I have no reason to believe there will be a good year in, in steel, but you know, sometimes there is there, you know, over um, your 10 year frame. And yeah, you know, and a lot if that times go you go get... three or four times, that could give you a really good IRR. Yeah, and a lot of times you get paid for that because if you buy things that are good investments, right? But they're in commodities or whatever. Uh, if they have a good year, then the stock will suddenly be valued very differently. And so if you bought things because you thought they were cheap versus their reserves or whatever, oil things and stuff, then a good year for oil is very helpful for you. Um and you know, I it, it's helpful to pay a low price, and it's not a it's not a dumb idea to pay a low price for some things that are speculative, whether we're talking about land things or we're talking about commodity things or whatever. We don't know what will happen with them, but if you pay a really low price um, compared to like their what they're likely worth in liquidation to another buyer, whatever. You know, I mean, we talked about cement things on the podcast, right? We didn't know what happened with cement or something, but you pay a fair price for a good price for a cement company. And then if there is a year where it's good, it works out. Um, Frost, total speculation in that you don't know if interest rates will go up or ever. But if when I wrote that up, I said, look, it'll earn 10% a year return on equity if rates stay at zero. And if they go to some big number like four, and now they've gone over that, um, then they'll suddenly earn a ton more. And so it's a speculation, but it's a speculation where you do fine on the downside and then you, you know, you make money on the upside that way. Yeah. I don't like the speculations where you're paying a really high price for it, you know? So like now buying 
you know, we talked about the coal things. Now buying coal companies after coal went up a ton and their stocks went up a ton. It might work out if it lasts another year or two or whatever, but it would have been really nice to buy it when, when, um, before coal went up so much, then you'd, you'd be doing better, you know, in the coal for steel making and stuff. So is there room for that in a portfolio? You think maybe you don't structure Mm. it a 20% position, but a smaller position that if you feel like, Hey, you know, if this hits, this could go up three, four or five times. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it depends. Cause we come across I mean, a lot of ideas where you're like, yeah, I could see yes. how this could work out. <laughs> I, I would, I would do it myself. Mm-hmm. I do it myself. You know, when you and I talk about like, well, how'd Buffett make all that money on the side thing? And I said, well, yeah. some of it, and you, t- and I've talked so much about how much I like um, a man for all markets. And I think people yeah. are baffled by that. Cause a man for all markets doesn't invest at all. Like the way we do, <laughs> yeah. but um, there's a similarity in some of the things. So, yeah, I mean, if it was just me investing, not in a fund, not in managed accounts, not for a long-term thing, whatever, that I could just buy something and just forget about it or whatever, think of each one as its own bet. Yeah, I, w- I would buy some things that would strike people as odd. Mm-hmm. Um, I think net nets always strike people as odd when you do them because the argument is always, well, how do you get your money? Mm-hmm. And I don't know the answer to that, but it is a speculation in that, like, something could happen. Um. And, you know, I, I, I'm a little more aggressive on that than some people. Like we did, um, one of the things when Quan and I were writing stuff up was on oil related stuff. We so two of the areas we looked into where I thought some things were, we, we both thought that some things were out of whack in the economy in that, um, there was a period where oil was sort of overpriced and stuff. Um, and there was a period where, um, interest rates were lower than they were likely to be in the future. So looking at that, um, we thought of companies that would benefit from lower oil prices. That's why we looked into cruise companies, for instance. And uh, I, for me, I would be willing to buy totally on the basis of ignoring the current price of something, in, in that case, oil, and going totally with the price we assumed. So... Oil, when we were looking at it, was, um, I forget if Brent was 110 or something like that. My memory is it might have been around there. Um, and we thought it should be between 30 and 70 long term. So I would plug in 30 to 70. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, with Frost, I would plug in 3 to 4%. Like I was in favor of plugging in 3% Fed funds. You don't, you have to kind of discount it or whatever for a little while in the sense that you're not getting it now. Yeah. But I don't think it makes sense to say that today, whatever data point we're on, is more accurate than our estimate of the long-term average. So um, if they can survive and stuff, right? So, like, you know, there was no threat of that with Frost. There's other ones where I would disagree because, um, like, uh, an example was there was a company that was cheap that did um, offshore. uh, It it rented out equipment. uh, it basically rented out equipment for offshore drilling. And uh, the problem is that it's very, you lose a lot of money on it when it's not being used. And so um, it was probably trading below liquidation value in a good market, but the problem was it burns a lot of cash and everything. And you have no idea if it would survive long enough to be in a good market. And so I wouldn't buy something like that. Um, it's it's maybe a good speculation. I don't know. It, it, I'm not comfortable with that. I wouldn't be comfortable with a bank that I thought was going to go out of business if rates didn't work the right way within a few years. 
But if they can work at 0% and they could do a lot better with it being a lot higher, you know, when we're looking at the cruise companies, they were making money when oil was very, very high. So that's actually not the thing that did them in. It's so, back to the extreme yeah, points. I, mm-hmm, yeah. So I don't have a problem with that, um, with investing in things because you think that there'll be some huge rebound or whatever, if you think that it'll survive. A lot of these are that, yeah, I'm not sure if it'll survive. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing is I like to base it on the economic logic of it. We talked a little bit about this, but like the ones I don't like are like uh, graph tech, which we talked about on the podcast, right? So the problem with mm-hmm. that is there's a, there was a contract in place but the economic logic of it didn't make sense for people to actually take to uh, to keep to the terms of that contract, right? So those are tough. Whereas, like when people would compare that to NACO, the difference is that those mines and those power plants were co-located, so that it made economic sense, right? I, I never want to rely just on like a um, contract, you know. So, so I don't know. But Buffett has done speculations. Mm-hmm. He speculated on on silver purely on the basis of uh, supply and demand stuff. So do you think he gains a lot of insight into all these other markets just from running Berkshire and receiving all the data points from their subsidiaries? I mean, I imagine, I mean, he's, he's soaking in so much information every single day that doesn't get widely reported in the wall street journal every single day, just from ordinary course of business. He might. It's possible. I mean, uh, I th- yeah, I think it's possible. But I don't know where he would have, like, very high-frequency stuff that other people don't have or something like that, you know. Um, when he's doing he things with see- silver, is that more yeah. just like a, he's looking for the extreme supply-demand imbalances? Yeah. So some things you look at, and there's obvious discrepancies between supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Now, there could be ways that it's resolved, um, because we don't know enough about other things around the world and stuff. So, like, you know, you could look today and say, okay, there's a supply-demand issue with uranium in a few years. Yeah, but, like, there's huge producers historically that are outside the U.S. and stuff that I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that that will not be resolved in some way over time. Um, you know, and a lot of these predictions don't look good over time if they're um, uh, not so value-based. Like, the issue with the oil thing and stuff is... Um, it's pretty hard to predict if you don't know the price. Like people predict like what will supply be in the future and stuff. If the price is high enough, they'll look for it and they'll find yeah. it. You know? um, so Capitalism so works. I, I, yeah, I don't like that. And as you know, I don't like the um, when they tell you their cost, mm-hmm. right? They're, that's a big thing is the cost thing. And um, it's fine. Like I think you can me- do like relative costs of some things, but actually it's pretty hard for some cost things because in a tight market, it would actually cost everyone a lot more. Um, so I think that that isn't the best, uh, you know, I don't think that's the most reliable number to be honest. Like right now what we have is like, okay, so if you need to have more, um, you know, if demand for like oil field services stuff now or whatever, I mean, it would have to be more expensive than it would be, um, you know, uh, in the last bust, right? Because just like employment overall is so tight right now that shifting to being able to use anyone for, I mean, it's just, it's really tough. You know, it would be like a restaurant saying that like, oh, this is how much it costs us to hire one more person or something. Yeah, it's a lot more expensive now when you're trying to do it after every, at the same time while your competitors are trying to do it. So, so usually the costs are much lower in a bust than in a boom. So that's a part I don't love when they do that. Mm-hmm. 
Becky Quick had asked him, can a great business be run by a lousy manager? Obviously, they fielded questions. And he said, sometimes Coca-Cola was run for years by a man with severe mental impairment. The directors just assumed he was drunk and let him stay there year after year. Now, that's my idea of a wonderful business. You could be mentally defective and run it pretty well. That was Coca-Cola in its heyday. And then she says, how far back are we talking? And he says, 25 years. And then she says, I'll let somebody else do the math on that and figure out the timing, like who it was. Mm-hmm. But that was funny. Uh, we could go down. Let's see what else we got here. Berkshire's admitted they had a few that they had people suffering from dementia and stuff that they still had in their position. Why do you think that is? Just they're reluctant to remove them. Yeah. I mean, Buffett's literally, we know some examples where they've named the person, but Buffett is literally given that as an example when he says why he has to fire someone is because of um, them suffering from dementia and stuff. Mm -hmm. So let's see what else we got here. Sorry. Baba. Let's see. Du, 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 du. Said, I regard Alibaba as one of the worst mistakes I ever made. And thinking about Alibaba, I got charmed with the idea of their position in the Chinese internet. And I didn't stop to realize that it's still a goddamn retailer. It's going to be a competitive business, the internet. It's not going to be a cakewalk for everybody. So he, as he reiterated, rubbing his face in his mistakes, he considers Alibaba a huge mistake. Yeah. It's a popular one with uh, investors following him and stuff. Uh, certainly I hear a lot of value investors talk about it. It's one of the most common things I get asked about, even though, you know. So I, what, I, I what do they do now? If they're like, oh gosh, I mean, are they bag holding because they just, they've been holding it? And they're now they're like, oh gosh, now Munger's coming out and saying that it was a huge mistake. That's the problem of stealing other investors' ideas, right? Like, what do you do? I mean, clearly he had his own investing mm -hmm. thesis, and when that was broken, he got out. But if you stole his thesis, what do you do? Now you're just putting your head in the sand. Yeah, but you know, also it may work out for you if you do put your head in the sand because it's different price and everything. That's you know part of the. Um, you know, sometimes it's a good idea to steal ideas after they've sold out or that have gone badly for them or whatever, too. It, it really depends on what they're right and wrong about. We talked about it, though. I mean, it's incredibly, there's evidence of really tough competition there for Alibaba. That's what we talked about. Mm -hmm. you know, that while it was very fast growing and it's huge and everything, there's just really strong evidence of competition there. And so that's a tough business. And usually, um, you know, certainly Berkshire, probably Charlie. Um, do not invest in businesses like that. They certainly don't invest a lot in retailers, and the record in retailers is pretty mixed, mm -hmm. except for the ones that truly dominate uh, enough in a local area or something like that, that they don't face a lot of competition. But highly competitive retail things they've had trouble with, and really their retail things that have gone well have been having a great, great manager, and then they didn't do so well when they didn't have a great manager there. Mm -hmm. So somebody asked about just investing in general over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Charlie gave an answer and he said, I don't worry much about it because I'm going to be dead. It won't bother me very much when I'm lying there dead. And then she said, I guess you want to point out to people that you're 99 and nobody lives forever. That's what you're referring to. And Charlie says, I'm 99. That's right. Becky asks, so you're not sick at the moment, right? He says, nope, because he was just chomping away. I'm peanut brittle. He said, mm -hmm. nope, 
I'm eating this good peanut brittle. That's what you want to do if you want to live to be 99. I hate to advertise my own product, but this is the key to longevity. And he uh, held up a piece of peanut brittle from C's Candies. And then she said, uh, somebody asked, do you think exercising a lot when you're younger is important to longevity? <laughs> Charlie, this was so funny. He said, I have done almost no exercise except for when the Army Air Corps made me do exercise. I've done almost no exercise on purpose in my life. If I enjoy the activity like tennis, I would exercise. But for the first 99 years, that's funny, first 99 years, I've gotten by without doing any exercise at all. And then Becky asks, and you're not planning on changing that anytime soon? Charlie says, no, I'm not changing it. Mm -hmm. That's Yeah, funny. Warren's not uh, big on exercise either, obviously. What the hell is wrong with these people? How are they living this long, Jeff? <laughs> what is, it's got to be stress, just lack of. I mean, I've we've talked about it before. Mm -hmm. Buffett hasn't had to... You know, the average person may think about money, paying the bills, whatever, kids. He hasn't had to yeah. think about any of that or has had any stress financially since his, like, what, late 20s, maybe mid 20s? He's been rich basically yeah. his whole life. Correct. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, there's some research on stress stuff. Uh, the thing that's complicated about it is it mainly seems that the issue is like how you deal with it. So it's not necessarily that stress is. For some people, I don't, for people like Charlie and Warren, I don't know that stress, um, how do I put this? What many people would perceive as a lot of stress being put on them, they don't feel is very yeah. stressful. Mm -hmm. They have a way of dealing with it that is very stressful. Whereas some people who we would say are not very stressed manage to be in a state of, uh, as if they're highly stressed. And I think it's that state that they're in that's more their ability to deal with it. So it's not just how much you have to deal with, but also how you deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So like you're saying, people could look at Buffett and be like, oh my gosh, you have so much responsibility. There's so much, so yeah. many people that rely on you. You probably feel the pressure or you feel so stressed. And he probably looks at it like, no, not at all. He loves it. Wakes up mm -hmm. and tap dances to work. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, Munger had some wealth uh, from real estate things and stuff early on, but you know, he had a few years where it was very hard getting back to making money for his partners. I'm sure that was very stressful for him. Um, you know, Buffett had the Solomon experience and stuff. So, you know, there's things that were more than they probably wanted to handle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Buffett stopped doing the partnership and he never would have agreed to stay on at Solomon and stuff. So they also won't take on, you know, they won't continue to maintain too much stress for them, you know? Mm -hmm. Somebody asked, how was Rick Guerin as a person, as an investor, and how do you remember his legacy? And I thought it was nice. He said he was just terrific as a person, as an investor. I miss him terribly, of course. We were together for years and years and years, and we were poor together. That creates a bond. When we met in 1961, we were both poor and struggling and young, so we had a long ride together. But all things end. That's the nature of the human condition which was a, a nice tribute to him. But anyways, you should uh, watch it. It's the replay is on YouTube. I also tweeted it out. And then I'll put this transcript in the uh, description. It was, uh, it was great. Hopefully next year they'll have it in person. Because I was going to say we should go if this one was going to be in person this year. Because there's some companies that we'd be able to see while we're out there. Yeah. But... So we'll see, but, uh, we could jump on forward on the podcast, five year anniversary. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, 
we got we've been getting a steady flow of questions from people, which is great. You can send your question Good. to focuscompounding at gmail.com. Uh, I'm kind of, let's see, we got about 40 minutes left. Yeah, we could see if we could uh, blitz through these. So somebody sent us a snap judgment and we will pull it up. Uh, SFBS. I think this one will be good for the pod because it looks a bit different from the typical bank. Not cheap, but maybe justifiable if future looks like past. Decentralized, banker-centric rather than market-centric, i.e. they expand where they find good human capital, growth model, seemingly huge deposit per branch, uh, good growing southeastern markets, decently diversified loan book allocation between mortgages, uh, commercial real estate, construction loans, and CNI, pretty levered equity, slash assets, and loans to deposits, unclear on the quality of their deposit base given their limited branch network. That could be something Jeff might spend a minute expounding upon some rules of thumb on that topic in terms of how one gets comfort on the quality of deposits when looking at banks and we could pull that up in quick fs Mm -hmm. i believe i know this bank and i believe i read their like transcripts and their 10q and stuff is a service first yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. so i looked at this bank and passed recently like some people asked about stuff i said i i just pass for now because um, I was concerned about deposits. So I was concerned about um, that some of their deposits were from other financial institutions um, and that those left the bank at a higher rate than the bank had um, had predicted, basically. And so there's just one line in the 10Q that you could get that from that was um, just like an alarming line that it had. So I think that they're experiencing a degree of stress to their deposits that is, um, you know, sort of unprecedented and not what they were expecting and stuff. They didn't put it that way exactly, but that's how I interpreted that like line in the 10Q. And uh, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't find it exactly. But basically what they said is that, you know, while they had expected it, um, it happened at a higher rate than they had expected. So it was very large. Um, Are these wholesale deposits? Uh, yeah, so Mother it's solution. like correspondent banking deposits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... um you know, I don't know. I mean, this is most banks are pretty relaxed about this compared to my concerns about it um, have been for the past year. But you know that I'm somewhat concerned about um, the possibility that deposits would leave some banks that have a lot of loans, so have a high loans deposit ratios, and um, the risk that that presents to them in terms of how quickly they think that rates will come down. And, um, you know, it's a different situation, but we even talked about this with um, First Republic, um, the the San Francisco bank. Um, because if you look, until about the beginning of 2022, I think that from the start of the pandemic on, Frost and First Republic were probably trading similarly. Uh, they're very similar banks in a lot of ways, but they're very different in terms of their... Um, the sensitivity to the, the the asset liability stuff in that uh, First Republic is um, much more uh, doing, uh, you know, like, I don't know if it's 90% or whatever, but like most deposits is very high there. And so they're putting it all into loans and they are less concerned about that than maybe um, I would have liked to have seen. And then they did this thing with, and their stock went down a lot, probably be, I think because of some things they saw with the CDs where they were very targeting specific times of sort of the feds presumed pivot. 
I think, because they didn't want to pay too much for money um, to do that. And also probably because they didn't want their own current banking clients and stuff to switch over to those products that were paying much higher rates and stuff. So it was a way of doing things that might be, um, uh, might work out better for them, but they did a lot of specials on things and stuff. So, uh, and I think I take that as a sign of stress in, in terms of the, the deposit situation there. Um, so, you know, I, the, the bank is interesting, uh, service first. Um, it has grown rapidly and much more rapidly than banks that I normally invest in. Um, it's largely organic stuff that we're talking about. Um, and it has been a little bit expensive stock, but a very strong business performance. Um, but you do have the possibility about the, um, deposit situation that we were saying. Um, I think it's more lending focused bank and we could talk about that. Like the distinction between different banks about whether they're focused on bringing in deposits and stuff or whether they're focused on making a lot of um, loans in that area and then what that means in terms of how they get their deposits and and how they think about certain things. And uh, I think it can be very big difference between banks. Um, generally, I think it's easier to invest in banks with confidence for the long term where most of the value is on the deposit side. Um, there is a lot of money that can be made from banks that focus on um, being very efficient and being good lenders, but it does present problems in times like now. Mm -hmm. So on his last question, um, how does one get comfort on the quality of deposits when looking at banks? We spent a good amount of time on this, but do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. I, so I'm not really comfortable on, on this bank with the quality of the deposits that way. Just well, so what we're talking about is really the marginal stuff, you know, is how marginal it is, how much will flow out mm. and, or, or in how hot the money is and stuff like that. Um, so we're not talking about like, obviously at most any bank, you know, there's a base that is probably pretty safe and whatever. Like individuals. But yeah. Yeah. But like if you're lending almost everything, right. So you have close to a hundred percent loans to deposits or something. And 20% of that is really hot money, mm -hmm. then you got a bit of a problem, mm -hmm. you know, and you could say what, and they could do presentations and stuff and tell you how great 80% of it is, you know, that four out of five, everything is all this stuff that's very sticky. But if 20% isn't, then, you know, you might, you might have a problem. And obviously if you're trying to grow very fast and all that, then, you know, it's a, um, then that's the issue that you face. Um, they, like you said, they have huge deposits per branch. Uh, it's a question of how they, got those and, and where they get it from. Um, you could talk to them. You could try to learn about the bank and all of that. Um, obviously trying to, um, promote yourself in ways that don't have to do with, um, necessarily very big clients. Right. Um, and necessarily tied to like rates and things like that would be better. So a large base of smaller businesses, households, things like that would presumably be better and um, a way of presenting yourself that doesn't focus on the costs involved and all of that would be good. Um, but a lot of it is pretty similar from bank to bank, depending on who, where they're getting the money from. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, when I break it down and stuff and talk about the deposits, what I'm really talking about, I've said is, you know, we're looking for deposits from households and businesses um, and more weighted towards transaction stuff, which is to some extent the opposite of what regulators talk about that way. But I actually don't think that time money is a good, I 
idea um, to the same extent that some do. Like if you read the book Capital Allocation, there's a discussion of how time money is more reliable than um, transaction stuff um, because that's demand stuff. But if it's tied to transaction-based things, I think that it's a lot uh, stickier over time. And then you can always raise rates when rates come up, just not by as much as you have to. You know, like people say like... um, um, so like say with frost or something, right? Like how fast will money leave the non-interest stuff that they have? Well, but then like you, you can raise the interest stuff faster than other banks are if, if you have a lot of non-interest stuff, right? Because like, say you have a ton of non-interest stuff and then rates go to four or 5% or whatever. Well, then you have, you try to move people over to the stuff that does pay interest mm-hmm. and that is yielding small amounts. I mean, if you said, okay, let's go to 2%. Well, 2% is giving you the same margin that you had before when rates were lower because of what you put it into and without taking any um, risk in terms of duration and stuff. It's like literally exactly the same. When you were at, you were getting a zero and, and making three and now you're getting a two and making five or whatever, it, you know, it's the same. So I think that is not necessarily the problem. The problem is more if like um, large stuff, I, I don't know enough to know if like government thing, you know, so some of them have local government municipal stuff if it's a big issue, but I mean, very large clients I think would be a problem, you know, depositors, very large depositors. Um, and there's some banks that are a little weird that way. So, I mean, there's like cross border banks. So there's banks in the United States that have large, some of the biggest in terms of deposits per branch that have large amounts of money that I think is tied to activities between Mexico and the United States and stuff. And so there's things like that. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and local in terms of being in the local area and everything, of course. Yeah. Um, I've always thought that money from other financial institutions is probably riskier, you know, a risk that it will leave you faster. Um, and I think from very large corporate, I mean, very large businesses and stuff is also risky because obviously you have a lot of the risk that that will move to money markets and, and different things that we could talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Um, so, you know, very small transaction things. Yeah. Bank can, of America is a good example of one that's very good in terms of deposit quality. Can you save people a Google search or two and explain what time deposits are or time money and demand deposits? Yeah. So basically CDs versus checking accounts. Yeah. So time, longer term, checking accounts, demand, you go and you can demand it now today. Mm-hmm. So you're saying you typically like the deposit mix to be more households and individuals as opposed to hot money what would you consider to be hot money would you consider other financial institutions to fall in that line yes depends but yes if I, if your primary reason for being there is like having higher rates or something then yes i, I would say that they shop it around or the yeah yeah exactly and it's the same thing with loan things like people talk about loans and the economies of scale and um banking and stuff and that's true but obviously there's kind of um, more difficult product economics when you have huge loans because if you're making a um, giant corporation that wants to, you know, have a headquarters somewhere or something, let's talk about that for like real estate things. Um, you know, they're going to get, there's one rate that they're going to get. So like they, if they go with you and you're the bank that they've used for everything, that's fine, but they're going to pay the rate that they would have gotten from someone else. Um, that's not as true for necessarily $200,000 instead of $200 million. Um, it's definitely not true for $20,000. So if you think about your own life and everything, um, I think many of us have at least an account that there's very little risk that it will go no matter what. Um, and even for people who aren't making a lot of money and whatever, you know, that what that amount is, but you know, there's probably $5,000 that isn't leaving the bank no matter what. 
Um, but if you then say, okay, what about if it's $25,000? Well, if your average balance for a lot of houses is 25 instead of five, now you're starting to think a little bit about interest rates. At five, you're not. Um, like it doesn't matter. Rates go from zero to 10. You're probably still like, um, you know, I mean, it's just considering that everything in your life is probably passing through that account mm. and everything that that's not necessarily going to happen. But as you go to different ones, you think, well, I could move the 20,000 and put that in something else. If it's pretty convenient, I'm probably not thinking I'll take that and put it into something that's locking up somewhere with some bank. I don't know, but you know, there'll be, um, credit card type companies that you heard of. There'll be PayPal type things. There'll be whatever. There'll be stuff that advertise online and you know, and if you can move it and do all these things, um, then you might do it. And as we get to really large amounts, you go 10 times up from that, then people are moving and when it's 200,000. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the same sort of thing for businesses, just on a bigger scale. So, you know, even when we're talking about public companies and stuff, their first million dollars is not going anywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that 10 million is not going anywhere. Because if they start to think at all that, you know, money is going to stay at those kinds of rates or stuff, then they need to work things out in a, um, in a d- different way for that. But there are lots of banks where it could just shift to being a somewhat higher cost to them, but isn't going to leave the bank. So there's a lot of other options for it, right? Inside the bank. Paying somewhat competitive rates, but not the highest possible rates. Um, it, you know, you might be able to keep a lot of the money and stuff. So, um I don't know nearly enough about it, this bank that way. Um, and then obviously just like who the customers of the bank are is really important. We've talked about that before, but um, sometimes the customers that you're lending to are going to always want to be borrowers and not be a source of a lot of deposits. And sometimes on the other hand, um, which has happened to a bunch of banks, is um, that you often end up with households that want to deposit a bunch of money with you, but actually don't tend to generate enough loan demand to offset that for you. So you have to do something else. Um, and you know, I've, um, mentioned that with frost where like they have a lot of households and stuff, but it doesn't, it's not for what they want to do. They're not going to generate a lot of loan demand from that. Um, so the business is more mixed for them because they do more CNI, which is a little bit more, um, it tends to be a little bit more compared to real estate. Let's put it that way. If you're a real estate focused lender, it's going to be hard to get a lot of deposits. Because, you know, your clients are basically people who want to always be short money and long real estate. Right. Um, you know, so it, it's not as even, it's not as even that way. And so they're going to be the ones that have more trouble, you know, unless they have different parts to the bank and all that. Um, so, you know, and then it depends on growth and stuff. So obviously the faster that they grew, the more likely that more of the money is, um, could be an issue of leaving. So, you know, uh, we don't know, uh, but that, that jumped out to me, that discussion of it. And I think that was not the most recent 10Q, but the one before that, actually. Um, so I could be wrong, but I think it was two 10Qs ago. Um, so that particular one, which is the last dis, uh, last bullet point here with um, Service First, is the thing that stood out to me about the bank. But yeah, it has an amazing record. It's not a very old bank. It has an amazing record through its existence, basically. So... Just a pass for you. For now, based on the deposit thing, yeah, because the deposit thing is the thing that's concerning me the most mm. about banks um, right now. Yeah, there's lots of different things that could happen, but for the most part, looking at banks, I think they're. It's not like they're being unrealistic about loan losses or something like that. But some are pretty calm about deposit things compared to what maybe they should be. 
And this is just the first step in your investing framework of avoiding any potential catastrophic losses, right? And not saying that the bank's going to blow up, mm -hmm. but if something is just a bit fishy, it's just easier to watch from the sidelines and see what happens. Avoid, pass. And, and it'd be greatly alleviated if the interest rate situation was different. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, but this is an issue for all banks in that we don't have much of a test historically for them. This is like a younger bank grew a lot. For any bank that's younger, grew a lot or whatever, um, we don't have much of a test because we've gone through such a long period where people weren't seriously thinking about interest rates for a decade or something. Mm -hmm. So because of that, they have no idea what will happen with deposit. Um, so, so it is like what banks went through in the late 60s to the early 80s because from World War II on, they had... You know, there were interest rates that are higher than what we're used to. Yeah. Um, but they they then went to a whole different level. And so people's behavior changed a lot. Got it. Next question. Assume you wanted to build a portfolio of six to 10 companies over time using the methods Jeff described in his, if you only have one hour a day article, but are starting with zero companies in the portfolio and a low seven figure amount of principal, say from a recent inheritance or sale of a small business. What would you do with the large cash balance you would have over the first two to three years as you slowly identified companies to build out a six to 10 company portfolio? Kind of a common question. Uh, normally, I'd say you could put a bunch in an index fund or something. Right now, I'd say you could buy two years or less treasuries. Mm -hmm. So keep so it in for, cash. I'd say for the, average, for the average person with the amount they're talking about, you would just put in a money market. Mm. Yeah, You can do, uh, I would say just like... Um, a money market fund, as long as you make sure that you figure out that they're truly basically just in treasuries or reverse repo that's short term. Why do you think you're more comfortable holding cash than other investors? Is it because you're a concentrated investor? So the moves are still meaningful even if you are holding a good amount of cash? Well, yeah, that could be possible. I mean, so I have cash. The main reason I have, I've had large cash balances before, which mainly happens if I eliminate one position or something, then suddenly I've had 20 or 30% of my portfolio in cash. Um, so that's part of it. Um, the other part is, well, one, I'd say my decisions have been very poor when making investments mainly because I don't want to be in cash. Mm -hmm. So over time, the investments that are the most marginal ones of filling up that like fifth slot, let's say if it's a 20% in each one portfolio or 10th, if it's, you know, 10%, um, is quite a bit worse than that, than the, um, than the portfolio overall. Certainly it doesn't, it has not performed better than the market. I would say it has not added to that kind of performance. Now it has performed better than cash probably, but, um, so that's one reason. The other reason is that, you know, i figure that I find something else eventually mm -hmm. and how much better the good things that I found are versus the less good is really, really big. So I would say that's another reason. Um, I'm also just much more pessimistic on the overall level of st stocks, I think, than most investors are. So like, I don't think it's unreasonable that, that when I say you might want to put it in cash, um, that cash will outperform um, stocks over the next several years. So... U.S. stocks, at least. Mm. Got a few more snap judgments. Uh, overseas, international stocks. Uh, let's see. McFarlane Group, PLC, 170 mm -hmm. million pound market cap. Packaging distributor. 20 years ago, the company sold off extraneous operations and focused on 
packaging distribution since then they've rolled up a good portion in the uk and are starting to expand into the continent consisted 20 percent returns on incremental capital with 70 percent of free cash flow reinvested and 30 percent dividend out currently trading around 10 to 11 times free cash flow and essentially no net debt excluding leases over the last 10 years stock price has kagered at about 15 percent are you familiar with this company mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> of course um pull i don't know yeah i was gonna say pull it up on quick fs okay I don't know enough about the business really, I guess. Um, you know, I've looked at it, it with the customers. So basically the, um, what they're doing is the, the customer is someone who's in between, you know, something that's going to your UPS store or whatever, and someone who's buying everything and doing it all themselves, giant company, which is mo- most of the companies that, um, you can think of publicly traded companies and stuff would kind of fall into this category of wanting to sort of outsource this in a sense. So while they said it's a distributor, it's more like they're taking on that for you, um, that there's a middleman that's doing this instead of you doing all this stuff yourself. Um, so it's, I mean, there's a few things. Uh, I think they talked about the free cash flow, but the free cash flow has not been super high, right? Um, That's been pretty high. Yeah. Um, and then the price is fairly normal, right? Let's see. How has it done since COVID and stuff in terms of, let's see. You want to go key ratios, price? Um, like valuation? You want to see a stock chart? That's No, I just, you can, that, that whatever you got there, that's fine. I was just curious about what's happened. I mean, the overview is fine. Mm, okay. What's happened since COVID? Yeah. I mean, it looks interesting. Mm-hmm. Is this the type of business you would be interested in? I mean, at the right price, mm-hmm. maybe. EV to sales, yeah, right... 0.6, 10-year media margins on EBIT, 5%. It's kind of right in the wheelhouse, right? Yeah. Would you demand a better price because it is a international stock? I mean, this isn't like you're investing in Domino's Pizza of the UK, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a few issues here. So they're not issues that it's a bad stock or something. They're just issues in terms of why I might not. It might not be the first thing I think of, right? So what's the 10-year median gross profit? 31.3%. Okay. So it's not particularly high that way, right? Um, that doesn't mean that that's bad, but the you know the returns on invested capital are what they are and, and all that. Um, the issues really... It has to do with, like we said, the customers and understanding this. Mm-hmm. So it is in a portion that's a little harder for me to understand. It doesn't mean that I can't research it and figure it out. But, um, I mean, it's it's hard to say because the UK market is a bit cheaper than the US market in some ways. But it's probably a bit attractive. It's not super high quality business and it's not super cheap. But compared to what we're seeing today in terms of your options for the price and everything... It's it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you had a widely diversified portfolio, this would be something that I think would make sense as part of that. Um, or if you were UK-based and understood these things better or whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, it doesn't get me super excited about things, but I don't have a problem with either the price or the returns. Very good. And then he asked for another one. S&UPLC, 250 million pound market cap, UK auto lender. Has multi-decade history of 15 to 20% returns on equity. 
He went through the financial crisis, currently trading at a PE of seven or eight and a price to book of 1.2, well below historical averages. Stock has, has been essentially flat for the last five years due to substantial PE and price to book multiple compression. So this company is similar to CarMart. I mean, that's the closest that people could think so of. Remind me of, of yeah. like what the charge offs are and, and what segment of the um, industry they're serving. Um, so like delinquencies and stuff are probably high or about to get high in that if it's similar to the U.S. where it's that's happening now. Um, I mean, for me personally, I'd probably buy CarMart because I just have more of a familiarity with that. I can go see where it is, where it's located, those things, and get some comfort with that. Um, but yeah, it's it's probably not a good time for them, mm-hmm. like what's about to happen. Uh, but it's an attractive stock in terms of its returns over time and its attractive price. So, But I understand why people avoid it because people avoid this stock. They avoid CarMart because it's pretty scary for them. So, um, This business also has a little bit that is different from that. They do a little bit, um, I think it's like bridge financing they talked about or something. So they have a, a business that's a little, um, that is not the same uh, but I don't remember how property bridge. What do they say there? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's obviously unrelated to, to um, the like subprime car. Got it. And then let's see a quick question for Mr. Gannon. You mentioned that you regret reading too many books about theoretical value investing in the mid two thousands, which books specifically are we talking about <laughs> and which ideas do you wish that you hadn't internalized from those books? Questions on gross profit. What's the highest acceptable price of gross profit and why? Well, I'm not going to say what books they are <laughs> um, because people worked hard on writing those things. And um, You're a gentleman. I would, I would say um, the value, quantitative value type stuff probably mm-hmm. more so. Yeah. Um, so sort of... Um, how do I put this? Uh, what people call a lot of times Ben Graham stuff, but if you really read Ben Graham, I don't feel that falls into that category. I think Ben Graham and the book A Man for All Markets and all that stuff is sort of a different category in terms of it's not just saying things that are very cheap or something, but things that you could prove in a sense are cheap in sort of a logical um, approach using things like net current assets and stuff I think is different. Um, but yeah, I think a lack of focus on common sense and business analysis and more on um, what things work statistically, quantitatively, factor things, whatever, that kind of stuff. Um, and then questions on gross profit. Um, the highest acceptable price to gross profit. Hmm. I mean, I guess it's a little hard. Well, I don't know if I could, if there is a particular answer to that because it would depend on the sort of like gna level stuff right mm-hmm. so um you know amazon or costco or something could have um higher prices to gross profit maybe than um the container store or something just because the way that the business is set up they're probably such high uh, there's not such giant scale right so something of tremendous scale could be cheaper that way um you know um i mean I, I don't know the answer to that just because of how fast it would be growing and all of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would be... Um, Maybe he's asking because the last podcast we did when we talked about Shopify at like 70 or 80 times oh, yeah. price of gross profit. Yeah. I mean, there's some expensive stocks out there right now in terms of gross profit and sales. Um, yeah, I, I don't... You know, um, 
it probably isn't a good idea to pay 30 times gross profit, you know? Yeah. Um, let's start with that. Um, I don't think it's usually a great idea to pay 30 times earnings and gross profit is not earnings. So mm. yeah. Um, but if it's growing extremely rapidly and stuff, who, you know, the it would just be hard to calculate that. Right. Mm. Um, and then gross profits are tangible assets. Um, I, I would say you want to be over 50%. That, I mean, what's good. I mean, some are, tremendously high but i think in general you want a business you want to be skeptical of businesses that generate less than 50 percent gross profits versus tangible assets though there could be exceptions to that if they have like big scale and whatever and you could try to figure it out but for your average business i would probably set it at around 50 percent if you want to kind of say what's the dividing line between maybe a better than average mm -hmm. business and not so good business i wouldn't worry about insufficient gross profits to tangible assets unless it's below 50 percent Mm. So, so some evidence you know, so of if a you, business. Yeah. So if it says gross profits of, um, you know, uh, 10 million or whatever, then I wouldn't want to see as, uh, tangible assets of more than, than 20. So 13 F's came out, mm -hmm. 13 F. And uh, I was looking at uh, Berkshire's. Some... Yeah. And so there's a few things. I mean, this there was, was one interesting me. one I noticed. Well, okay. What did you notice? I mean, the Taiwan semiconductor. Yeah, selling that. Yep. So I wanted to get your opinion completely on right. that. Yeah. yeah, sold that out well, virtually completely. I mean, yeah. he built the position. What was it like in Q3, and then sold it in Q4? Which, if Buffett's doing yeah, that, that's interesting. That tells you, obviously, he thinks he made a mistake. We have it right here, Q3 2020. Yeah. Or 2022 Q3. Yep. He bought 60 million shares, and then when they had to report, uh, they were down to 8 million shares. He still made money, yeah. even though, you know, pennies or whatever, or dollars, but still something uh, clearly scared him off, which, you know, that was Buffett. Yeah. And I don't know if we know exactly, because that's using, like, when they say reported price, right, on this website, they mean uh, Data Roma. They mean, like, the price it was at the time of the filing. Oh, okay. Is that what they mean? Uh, I'm not sure. I think so, because they're drawing from different things, but if they're drawing from, like, the 13F, then they're using what price it was at the end of that quarter. Mm as opposed to if they have like form four or whatever, things like that. Um, so, you know, but that's a good, I mean, obviously you, you reconsidered, right. You probably weren't buying a stock just to make money on it for a quarter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a Buffett investment and I'm not sure if it would be either of the other two would go in with the intention of holding for like a quarter. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that so, in general? I mean, I'm kind of, that was shocking to see. I yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting. I wouldn't have been surprised if it kept growing in size once that investment was made. Mm -hmm. um, it's not one that I would buy, you know. Um, and it's kind of outside of circle of competence for, for Buffett generally, but we speculated, well, maybe, you know, Apple, mm -hmm. learning about Apple and stuff and, and all that might have been that there would be something like um, Taiwan Semiconductor. And Taiwan Semiconductor, of all the semiconductor companies, makes the most sense because of exactly what it does, its place in the industry, it's way closer to a Buffett-type thing, then, you know, he's not going to buy any of the other ones that I could think of, you know. Um, so it's a, although it's called Semiconductor, it's a completely different business, right? And we talked about how that might be with the economies of scale and everything, that's something he'd be interested in. But whoever it was, they sold. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And bank stocks were sold as well, which somebody had emailed yeah. in about. So you could see USB... Uh, Bancorp, uh, Bank of New York, Mellon, and uh, is that the only one? 
Yeah, then he also added to, I mean, assuming it was him, added to Apple as well. But it could have been, you know, one of the younger guys, as they refer to them right. as. Uh, and a little sale of uh, the arbitrage position, mm-hmm. but not a huge one. Yeah. But somebody had wrote in and said, are they relatively less attractive? Uh, why has Buffett been selling almost all his bank stocks? Uh, he said that would be weird given the low valuation relative to the market. Does he see particular risks in the industry? That seems to be the only explanation, but you might have other thoughts. So do you have any thoughts on why Buffett has been selling down some of his financial stocks? Well, he hasn't been selling Bank of America. So this is a thing that we've seen for a while that he focused on Bank of America and hasn't sold um, and has sold off the other things. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a continuing thing that we saw um, back when it was Wells Fargo and uh, he had sold some other ones down over time. Um, so I don't know what to make of that. He didn't sell Citigroup, right? Is mm-hmm. that right? Yep, correct. We we don't know that's him, by the way. That that could be definitely outside of his... Um, the number of the size of the stocks that would definitely be him, but uh city group's pretty cheap and stuff. So, you know, um, I, he's probably by far most comfortable with bank of America. Mm-hmm. Um, the other banks that he was selling, uh, no, I don't know that there's much in the way of big risks for them. Um, they're very, a couple of them are very different. The, the rate thing does have some, mm, I mean, it's a little different for Bank of New York than for a lot of other banks. They have big businesses and um, and stuff that uh, other banks do not. But I don't know that that's a reason for selling any of that. Um, yeah, uh, U.S. Bancorp has been a very long-term holding, right, mm-hmm. by Berkshire. Mm-hmm. I think they may have bought some more, like around the financial crisis or something, but it's a long-term holding. Um, but one that I believe has been shrinking over time and they got completely out of um jp morgan right even earlier Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so definitely just focusing on bank of america but bank of america is a huge position for them yeah yeah so i don't know i mean i don't think is he actually underweight banks compared to other people now i mean what's the index made up of banks and stuff you know like Mm -hmm. um i don't know It, it doesn't yeah I'm not sure. He it, look. I've always thought the banks were most likely to be Buffett positions, and Buffett does eliminate positions that get too small and stuff a lot of times, unless he really likes the people involved or something. Mm-hmm. It was like M and T or something, and and the person that he had invested with was still there or something. Then he probably would keep it. Um, but you know, otherwise he tends to focus on just owning the biggest that he likes in that industry. You know. Mm-hmm. Yes, maybe that's it. He just wants to just own Bank of America. Apple, 38.9% of his mm-hmm. portfolio. Huge position. And it's funny because then you look at the, the other stocks in the portfolio and they're just, <laughs> I mean, the Bank oh, of America yeah. is the next biggest one at 11%. Oh, he, and he hasn't trimmed at all American Express. Mm-hmm. So now one thing about Bank of America and American Express, they are not very exposed to um, risks in terms of borrowing short and lending long. Mm-hmm. Right. So like American Express, if you look at quick FS or something, we could, um, they are very different. So they have a bank now because of the financial crisis and everything. So, you know, um, and then people know them as the the credit card company and unlike other credit card companies, they are underwriting the loans as well as running the network. So, um, what you see there with the spread and everything is 
the you know they, that's why their loan loss reserves will be uh, their loan loss provisions are high is because they're a credit card company right mm-hmm. um but they aren't making long-term loans and uh they would benefit from like float and stuff like that and then we talked about bank of uh america's great deposit base and stuff too that way so these are two that would be probably of the giant financial companies i would think i haven't looked at them closely recently but I've got to think that they're two of the least exposed to the risks of um, what we talk about, like inverted yield curves and all that kind of stuff, of the risks of deposits flowing out, like we talked about, and also of like paying a lot for short-term money and then not being able to charge a lot on the longer-term side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not a problem for American Express. I mean, he's held Bank of America for a pretty long time, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, oh, and he's held American Express for an incredibly long yeah. time. I mean, of the financial things, that's the one he's most, Geico's the most, you know, which they own completely. But second most, the second um, most connected to Buffett historically is American Express. Mm-hmm. You know, bought it in the partnership years, bought it again in the 90s, and, um, you know, owns it through to today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know all the, like, I'd have to look carefully about how they've done and how they were likely to do in the future, but... If it was an issue about bank things that way, it could just be him trimming things to get rid of it. The other possibility is that um, these are a little bit different in that um, I think that they're the kind of banks that he likes the best and they're the least exposed to um, having trouble between borrowing short and lending long. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, Which is something you've been He's talked about. a lot about that. I mean, you were talking about that early in the podcast, but we've spoken about that really since like beginning of 2022. I mean, we've been talking about it since 20 talking about it since 2021 Mm. um doing things about it since maybe 2022 or something but yeah but being concerned about it and stuff yeah um yeah because the the reaction speed whatever you want to call the uh the way in which banks have reacted and others have reacted and analysts and everything has not been too fast they're not overreacting to the risk i would say so i think people have been pretty relaxed about it um so Whereas like with the loan losses and stuff, which I hear more talk about that sometimes, um, you know, yeah, the delinquencies for the, like we talk about subprime delinquencies and stuff, but that's built into the business of something they worry about all the time and they talk about it. So, you know, it'll be unpleasant for them for a period of time for these companies, but they're used to that. Um, these, you know, this is uh, something that anyone who works at these banks hasn't really experienced before. So, I mean, we're talking something that hasn't happened for like 40 years. at this speed and this experience of it and stuff. So, um, yeah. And, uh, Buffett might have some concerns that way, but I don't know. Cause if he had really big concerns, he might sell even faster than he has and stuff. So I think he, my guess would be that he really loves bank of America and American express in a way he does not love the other banks. Mm -hmm. And he has permission to purchase more bank of America too. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's not something that he would dart in and then, dart out pretty quickly no um no it's it's a very big position Mm -hmm. and the american express one is a very long-term position you know that he's had forever so Mm -hmm. um yeah so but but, i mean if you add those up and then consider that berkshire is itself in finance related things actually in terms of holding stuff outright that people may not realize in terms of their um you know, the manufactured housing stuff and things like that are mainly to hold mortgages, basically. Um, and then uh, insurance, you know, this is a heavily, heavily financially oriented company. 
So it and it has a portfolio that probably I don't think is underweight financials compared to the index, but I, I didn't don't know. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'll thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Five years in. Having a lot of fun doing it. We will see you five years down the road. If you've been with us since the beginning, which I know some of you have been, thank you so much for uh, tuning in with us every single week. We constantly iterate and try to make the podcast the absolute best that it can be. And we're always open to feedback. And a lot of the changes we have made over time have come from feedback. Thank you so much to everybody for tuning in with the both of us. My name is Andrew Kuhn. His name is Jeff Gannon. We are part of Focus Compounding. And we will see you in the next podcast next week, per usual. Take care.